been about seven years since we were here last. I think we were scheduled four years ago, but a little baby boy came along and we had to reschedule. And so I'm glad it worked out for us to be here this morning. I've been so blessed being a part of this uh, gathering of believers this morning. Yeah, I love being a part of church where the emphasis is worship. And that is the scriptures, the reading of the scriptures, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And it's been a blessing just being here. I've enjoyed this service. It just reminded me so much of, of home in Senegal. And uh, we do it very similar. We, we read lots of scriptures. Uh, we look at lots of passages. That's actually how we train some of the young men to prepare for further ministry is we'll give them about 15 minutes in a service to come up and read a passage, give a little thought, and uh, then we critique them and work with them through that until they're ready to give a full-fledged message. But uh, it's just been neat to watch how God uses that. But that, that's the key. That's how we started our church in Senegal was just reading passages, opening it up to questions. That's one thing that does draw uh, people to Christ is sincere love, the reality of the truth of the gospel, and then just the fact that you're open to questions. Peter said, be ready always to give an answer to everybody who asks you for a reason of the hope that's in you. Christian, people in the world ought never to see fearfulness and fretting. They need to see a living, real hope. The name of our ministry is Yakar Dusach. The Yakar Dusach Ministries uh, we had different ideas we were shooting around to try to come up with for the name of our ministry and our church planting ministry and the church name. And uh, Malik presented my, uh, our pastor. He said, how about Yakar Dusach? It's from Peter, First Peter, where it says, you are born again unto a living hope. And uh, I thought, man, that's perfect. We are a living hope. Uh, missionary colleague of ours who's in the Gambia, which is a country within Senegal. So when you see Senegal, it's like somebody poked a, like it's a mouth down there. That's that's Gambia, a whole separate country, same ethnic groups, but they were a British colony rather than a French colony, so a little bit of a different system down there. I was just there about a month and a half ago, and uh, we were doing, uh, there's a church plant there, the Yakar Jisak Baptist Church, starting a new church there, and uh, we did a biblical faith seminar with some of the believers there, and uh, while we were there, I was asking people, man, nobody, you, you guys aren't even acting like COVID's a thing. Like, no masks. I mean, everybody's, you know, doing whatever. They're like, nah, COVID's for the tubab. COVID's for the white people. <laughs> it's, it's for all you Europeans. I said, all right. Well, then I leave Gambia. What, do I, what happens? The white guy gets COVID <laughs> while he was in Gambia. So I had to quarantine and stay in Senegal for like an extra 12 days. And what a mess that was. But finally got back here. And, uh, but while I was in Gambia, it was, I mean, I got off, off track there. Anyways, so the point is, Daniel is getting the church down there. Daniel, who's the missionary there, he has a friend. He's from Georgia, and he met a guy who is from Senegal, and he's teaching at the University of Georgia and also doing some research with agriculture. And so he asked him, what, what do you envision? What, what comes to your mind when you hear the word Yakar Jusai? And he said, well, it's the idea of, of it's a hope. It is a hope that's that's alive. And he said that the best way, this is a Muslim responding, and I loved his, what it what the idea it gives. He said it's the idea of when you plant a seed and that's living and there's life that's being produced. And it's a guaranteed hope that when you plant and everything's done the right process, it's going to produce and there will be fruit given. All that is encompassed in Yakar Tusak, living hope. We are born again unto a living hope. The seed of the gospel has been planted into our hearts. 
And we're not perfect yet. We're still getting there. But that living hope, it's a hope that is guaranteed if you will just stick with the gospel and emphasize the gospel and walk with the Lord. It will develop and grow and mature and produce. And that's all we're doing in synagogue. We're just planning the gospel and letting the gospel mature and produce. And churches will be the result of that. Salvations will be the result of that. Uh, disciples will be the result of that. So we're so excited about what the Lord is doing and uh, what he will continue to be doing in synagogue. Please stop by our display table, pick up a prayer card. Uh, we have some little items from synagogue. Julie has some baskets there that a lot of times women ask if they're for sale. And so we do offer a few. If you're interested in that, you can look up at all that. The proceeds go to different ministries there in synagogue. And, uh, and just follow us online. Keep up with us. And we appreciate so much your prayers for our ministry. Uh, absolutely essential that people pray for the work there. And then we extend an open invitation. Come visit us anytime. And uh, the borders are open. And we're supposed to be going up to Canada here soon. We don't even know if they're going to open the border to let us go up there. And uh, so we'll see anyway. So Senegal's wide open. Come on over. Visit us. And uh, we would love to have you anytime. We're going to look at 2 Kings. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. I love all the stories of the Bible. 2 Kings chapter 5. And this is a story of name. A lot of times when a big movie is about to come out, they'll do a trailer. We're going to do a little trailer here. Okay, get a little bit of idea of what's going on, some spoilers, and then we're going to get into the Bible story. Naaman, this character, this great man, he's a general in the Syrian army. And uh, here we see that Syria, at this time in Israel's history, is kind of a thorn in the flesh of Israel. They're crossing the borderland, they're coming in, different skirmishes, attacking villages, just being an all-around nuisance. And the Bible says, we're introduced to this gentleman named Naaman, verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but, the Bible says, he was a leper. So here's the twist, okay, in a world, okay, where Israel is suffering from Syrian invasions. This mighty man, Naaman, coming in and attacking, leading his great army to victory, suffered with this incurable disease, leprosy. Now, the Bible goes down, and we'll get into how it all happens, but he ends up going to Israel with a letter written from his king of Syria to take to the king of Israel, basically saying, you need to heal my general of leprosy. Now, there's different responses, but essentially, Elisha, the prophet, catches wind of the letter and says, let him come, and we'll heal him of his leprosy. He'll know there's a prophet in Israel. And if you know this story, he goes down in verse 13. He goes down in verse 14. Actually, he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is an amazing story. Okay, here's a man, a general, how he goes from leading armies, this great general, to dipping in a Jordan River and being healed. It's an amazing miracle story. I love the stories of the Bible. Hollywood ain't got nothing on the stories of the Bible, right? Marvel ain't got nothing on, on all these Old Testament stories. Superman ain't got nothing on Samson, all right? I love the stories of the Bible, not just because they're so exciting, but because they're true. 
And the Bible tells us in the New Testament that these stories are important for our Christian life. Why? Because they admonish us and are examples on how we ought to live and behave most of the time stories on how we ought not to behave. But either way, there's character and, and there are lessons that we can draw from these stories. Senegal is a very story-oriented culture. We do story a lot in the way that we present the gospel and draw people in. That's why we've had millions of views with that. We, did a par we take the parables and we'll kind of modernize them. We ask ourselves, what if Jesus was to tell a parable today to the Senegalese people in the Wolof language? How would he tell it? And so we'll try to adapt it and then act it out in that way. We did the prodigal son and uh, not, not that one yet. That's our next project. We did uh, the Good Samaritan. And uh, we had, you know, a guy, trash collector, who's going to get pushed around by a wealthy guy. And then eventually uh, some religious leaders come by after he gets attacked and beat up and everything. And then that trash collector comes by and helps him out and everything. Because we were asking yesterday, we were talking with family a little bit, are there caste system? And there is a little bit of a distinction. And so anyways, that was well received. Many people watching that. And it opened up many doors. Story is important. So here we have a story of the first character that we're introduced to is this man named Naaman. We're introduced to a mighty man with a great need and no solution to his need. The Bible says he was a great man. He was the captain of the host to the king of Syria, a great man with his master, and honorable. He was a man of integrity. The Bible says because by him the Lord had given victory unto Syria. Here is a man of integrity, a man of great character, a disciplined man. Naaman essentially is the best the world has to offer. He's the type of guy that men would point to and tell their sons, that's the type of guy you want to grow up to be like. A man of character, a man of discipline, a man of integrity. He really represents the best the world has to offer. But in that way, he also represents everything we are when we're born into this world. We may achieve great heights and civilization and cultures and peoples, and we may be able to build our great civilizations and build our great cities. But at the end of the day, there's that little tag that's given to every one of us that's written of Naaman, but he was a leper. And we know in studying the scriptures, leprosy oftentimes is representative of sin. And the Bible can say that of all of us. No matter who we are, no matter what great feats we achieve, no matter what we do in this life, no matter how much character, integrity, no matter how good a guy you are or good a person or girl you are, at the end of the day, every single one of us is born a sinner, separated from God, with a sin nature incompatible with God. That's why we're separated from God. We're not separated from God because we're necessarily good or bad. We're just born with a nature that is sinful, corrupted, separated from God. And here is this man with leprosy. He could command armies. He could command the military. He demanded the respect of his men. He could conquer kingdoms. He demonstrated courage on the battlefield. He was a man of integrity. But at the end of the day, he was a leper. Leprosy was an incurable, horrible disease, especially at this time. It's a little bacteria that gets into your spine and, and begins to eat away at your body and boils break out and 
body parts begin to get eaten away and, and fall off. It's just an awful disease. And there's a lot of social implications to it. If you were found out to be a leper, you'd be ostracized and cast out as unclean and couldn't be a part of a, a functioning society. So I would imagine a man like Naaman, who's used to being in control, used to being in charge, I can imagine the frustration of having leprosy, something he had no control over. I imagine he did everything he could to cover up the leprosy. But despite all the efforts he did to cover up this, this weakness, this leprosy from his men, at the end of the day, he'd go home, take off his armor, look in the mirror if he had one, and he's still a leper. And there was nothing he could do about it. And all of us are born into sin, the Bible says. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here is a man who did everything he could. And really, he's representative, not just of the best the world has to offer, and essentially what we are by nature, but he represents what the world has to offer as a religious substitute for trying to deal with this issue of sin. See, I try to tell our people in our church, we may be a small church, and we look, especially being in a country that's predominantly Islamic, and if somebody in a neighborhood wants to build a new mosque, they'll just write a letter to Saudi Arabia, get a bunch of money in, and uh, put up a brand new mosque. And when you're in a culture where the majority of people are following the same religion, and the majority of people all have the same mindset, where they build their great mosques, or their great cathedrals. And I know in America we have great buildings, and God is blessed, and all that. But when you're in a country like Synagogue, where it's just a fledgling church, just a handful of believers, it can be intimidating. And sometimes I can understand a believer to step back and say, am I really practicing the truth? I'm the only one in my entire family that sees this. Am I really practicing the truth? And I try to remind our church that all the religious uh, buildings and all that they have to offer, it's nothing more than just the fake houseplants that we decorate our churches and our homes with. They look nice. They're expensive. They're beautiful. But they don't do a thing except that. Look nice. And empty your wallet by trying to buy another one. They don't offer life. I'd rather what our little churches, I'll tell them, we're just a little seed that's been planted in the ground and it may be just a little fledgling, little piece of, uh, of plant that's growing out of the ground. There may not be much there, but I'd take that any day over one of these fake trees because there's life there. There's potential there. There's reality there. It's alive. God is at work there. And so he really is representative of really so much of what the world has to offer with our great religions and civilizations and cultures. And yet at the end of the day, we're all just sinners. You see, the world is powerful externally and corporately, but the world is hurting and lost internally and individually. And anything that COVID has exposed is that hurting individual heart. We can get caught up with the corporate noise out there of anti-maskers and pro-maskers and anti-this and pro-that and anti -that, and everybody's got an opinion. But at the end of the day, when everybody shuts off their Twitter feed, they're empty and hurting inside, longing for personal contact, longing for somebody to just reach out and love them. And that's what we're called to do. And God is about to do something amazing. Reach out and touch this man's life. Something amazing. And he's going to use the most unlikely character. The next character we're introduced to is a little girl with a big God who's put into a bad situation. Here's a little girl who's put into a bad situation but has a big God. 
The Bible says in the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. Now put yourselves in the shoes of this little girl, probably a young teenager, minding her own business, sitting at home with her family. The Syrian army comes bursting into her village, breaks down her door, knocks her dad down, does who knows what to their home and their family, scoops her up, throws her on the back of a horse, ties her down, maybe puts a hood over her head, and carries her off into their country, kidnapping her, and then making her a slave girl. And, and to add insult to injury, this little girl, scared, alone, brought to this country, kidnapped, taken from her family, put in this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad situation. And to add insult to injury, she's made the slave girl of the very general who sanctioned the attack on her family and put her in this place in the first place. She's now the slave girl of his wife. If anybody has precedent for being bitter at God and at life in general for the situation that they found themselves in, it's this girl. If anybody has a reason to cross their hands and say, why on earth, God, would you allow me to be put here? If you're so loving, why would you allow this? I don't know if I would have responded the way she responds in this story. And I think about all the wonderful believers that we work with. And I, I could go for hours telling stories of believers that we work with and the persecution they go through. And when I hear of some of the things they go through, I mean, the worst that happened to us is maybe one time I had an old guy when I was coming out of the store spit in front of me, you know, to try to insult me. That's the worst. I, we really don't. As a family, we don't face really much persecution. But when, when one of their own gets saved, I remember one guy got saved and his dad kicked him out of the home and then he came up to him and he said, Gabriel, if you if you keep going to that church, it was a Brazilian church, a friend of ours who was the pastor there. He said, if you keep going to church there, your uncle and I, we're going to burn down the church building. And uh, Gabriel went to the pastor, our friend Sergio. He said, pastor, I want to keep coming to church, but I... You know, I don't want my, my dad to burn the building down. You know, I'm not, what do I do? I want to keep going to church, but, I, you know, I don't want to cause a problem. And uh, Pastor Sergio said, well, you, you let him come and burn the church down. That's fine. He said, really? He said, yeah, we're renting the building from a Muslim anyways. We'll just find another building. <laughs> All right, we'll go out and find another building to rent. Now, they never burn it down. But, I mean, they, they, they imprisoned him for a month, and they did all kinds of things to him. And yet his response was always the same, despite what they were doing to him and abandoning him disowning them. Whenever they said, are you ready to come back to Christ after they do something to him to try to get him to recant? He said, look, you can do whatever you want to me. Try to force me to drink your holy water. You can deprive me of food. You can deprive me of sleep. You can do whatever you want to do with me. You can't change the fact that Jesus, and this was his answer, you can't change the fact that Jesus is now in my heart. I, that, that's who I am now. There's a young man, the first man we led to Christ when we were in synagogue. He's from a neighboring country, led him to Christ. When we met, we studied for about a year, and then he was just thirsty and open and hungry for the Word of God and just drinking it all in. And after a year of, one thing that's interesting is a lot of times discipleship in a, like a Muslim country begins before they even get saved. We, that's how we approach it. We just, I basically approach it where I'm discipling this person, and in the process of discipling, they'll come to faith in Christ. And if you approach it that way, then they're already, once they finally come to Christ, they're already pretty strong in their faith and ready to face persecution. Similar ways that this young man did. He went back to his country and I told him, there are no believers. I understood there are no believers in his village, in his neighborhood. So if you're not ready to let your family know you're a believer, then don't feel pressured now. 
And I go. He said, well, he said, yeah, he said, I'll take a, actually, if you'll write Bible verses for me to study in a notebook. I don't want to take a Bible because if they find it, they'll like, get upset. Well, I didn't know his uncle was the imam to the president of that country. Very powerful man. Influential man. And his uncle, with a long story short, ended up finding the notebook just with Bible verses written into it. And asked him, have you been studying this instead of the Quran? Which he was sent to, be, to our city to become an imam. And he said, yeah, I've been studying the Bible instead. And his uncle took a stick wrapped with barbed wire and began to beat him in front of all the other chronic students. And by the time he was able to call me, he was hospitalized. And at 24 days, he was in the hospital, finally was able to get out and escape from his own. They left the door unlocked one evening. He was able to escape, got back up to synagogue. Like this little girl, I mean, when I hear those stories, I think, man, my question would be, why, why would you allow this, God? And, and if you could meet these people and see the joy and the smile on their faces, you'd never know what they just went through. And this little girl, I mean, if it was me, I don't know if I would have responded. What does she do? Naaman comes home, takes his armor off, throws it into the little girl. Watch this. There's blood on it, probably blood from people in her own village. She's in there scraping. If it was me, I'd be scraping the blood off. And I'd be in this jar. I can't believe you put me in this situation. I hate this guy. And then he's over in the other room. And you know, as guys are, you know, we're pretty tough in public. We get home though and we stub our toe and we're crying to our wives. So he's at home. He's like, oh, this leprosy. It's so itchy. It's awful. There's a new boil here now. And man, it's awful. If I was a little girl and I overheard that, I'd be in there saying, I hope it burns. I hope he gets boils all over. I hope he gets one on his back that he can't itch. I hope he's in the middle of battle and his nose itches and he can't reach up and itch it while he's in battle and distracted. In fact, I hope his nose falls off. That's probably how I'd want to respond. Being a little bitter toward that. But what does she do? Look at the next verse. Verse 4, and 1 went in, and verse 3, and she went unto her mistress and said, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. She goes in and says, Ma'am, ma I couldn't help but overhear that your husband has leprosy. And you know, we serve a God who is pretty powerful, and uh, he's healed people. I've heard stories, and there's a prophet there. If he can just get to the prophet, he could be healed of his leprosy. If he could just get to the man of God, he might be healed. Now, this little testimony, this simple testimony, causes a great stir in the kingdom, and it initiates a spiritual journey towards salvation. So Naaman catches wind of it. One went in, told Naaman. Naaman goes to the king and says, hey, this old maid girl that we brought out of Israel, she said, if I go and look for some prophet over there, that they'll be able to heal me. So the king of Israel, we see, first of all, the king's demand. The king of Syria responds with a demand. Verse 5, he says, And the king of Syria said, Go to you, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold, and 10 changes of raiment. So here's this heathen king who his entire life has been serving a heathen god, having given no allegiance ever to Yahweh, the true God of Israel, having served and bowed down to a pagan god, a pagan god, by the way, that has done nothing for Naaman's true condition. A god who has taught them what they should do to appease the gods in their actions, but never giving him any real hope for his true condition. And here's this pagan king who says, hey, I'm going to write a letter, and this god of the Hebrews is going to do what I say because I demand it. 
There's so much arrogancy and pride in false religions. And the worst part is people don't even realize it. This idea that just, I'm going to, by my own merit, my own work, and by nature of who I am, I'm a good person, that I'm going to find play, find God's favor. And the thing is, this God had nothing to offer. This God the king served had nothing to offer. Nothing to offer is true need. We find it amazing in synagogue that many people we work with, and it's the same with all religions across the board, Satan has no new tactics. They're all the same tactics. And Satan has nothing to offer. All he can do is defend. All he does is offer up defenses. He doesn't have anything of substance to give. So he teaches and trains those who follow him how to defend against the truth. And that's what we found working with many Muslims in synagogue. Most of them don't even know really a lot of the fundamentals of their own faith in Islam. We could spend all day with a Muslim just explaining to them what they are. They know what to do. They know the process of prayers, counting beads, going through the names of Allah. They know the process of what they're supposed to do, but the substance, there's no substance. But they do know how to respond. God has no son. It's taught from time a child is three, four years old. They're taught God does has no son. Don't read the Bible. Don't listen to the missionary. Don't listen to the white guy. Don't go to church. They're taught what not to do. And one thing we found is when you're a sinner by nature, a lot of times children as they grow older are a little bit rebellious. And so this defense of don't do this, don't go see the missionary, don't go to church, don't read the Bible. Well, what happens when you tell a little kid, don't do something, don't look in that cookie jar now, I'm going to go, don't look at what are they going to do? They want to look. They want to see. You know how many times we've had young people come to our center and they say, hey, uh, you know, we've been taught that God, Jesus didn't die on the cross. Okay, okay, I understand. We don't believe that. I know, I know. And then they'll look around and say, but if he did die, why did he have to die? You know, they want to know, why are we being told to not believe these things all our life? Here's what Jesus said about that. See, Satan only has our defenses. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know what the gates of a city are? A lot of times we think Satan's he's assaulting the church and Satan's assaulting us as individuals. And sure, there's demonic forces out there assaulting believers. He walks around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We need to resist steadfastly in the faith. He will flee from us. But when Jesus said, I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the gates of a city is the final defense. It's the final defense of a city. In other words, Satan's not on the offensive. Satan's on the defensive. And as we expand the church and take the church and the gospel into his territory, Jesus said, as you advance with the gospel, the defenses of Satan will prove futile. There's nothing that will stand against the advance of the church. All we have to do is take it and go and preach it. And God will do the work. And they'll fall. And God will do his work. And people will be saved. That's what we're called to. And here's this king trying to think he's going to, you know, Get God to do something just because he said so. Now, there's a lot of pride that God's got to break down here. We see the response of, quickly moving through, the response of the king of Israel. He's a king in despair. He gets the letter, verse 6 and 7. He brought the letter to the king of Israel. When he let, read it, the letter says, I sent name in my servant to thee that you may recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel read the letter, he, rent his, he tore his clothes. And he said, am I a god? That I could heal and make alive to kill? Is this man he sent unto me to recover him of his leprosy? You see, his response to this impossible request 
It reveals his proximity to God. He wasn't very close to God. I mean, we talk about open doors. If there's an open door, this is an open door. This guy ought to know better. He serves the God of Israel. He serves the God who parted the Red Sea. He serves the God that delivered Israel from Egypt. What's wrong with this guy? Here he comes with this amazing open door. A guy asking to see a prophet to be healed. And what does he do? He says, am I God? Of course you're not God. Of course you can't heal him. You're not called to heal him. You're called to get him to God. And he makes it all political. Am I God? I know what he's doing. He's trying to seek a quarrel with me. His response exposed his proximity to God. I can't do it. Well, of course you can't do it. He said, I don't know if I could ever be a missionary in a place like Senegal. I couldn't either. I, honestly, I don't know what, what on earth, why God even put us there. I, mean, I have nothing to offer that makes sense. On paper, it doesn't make sense that a family like ours would go to a place like Senegal, West Africa. But that's not the point. It's God's work. And you just surrender to God. And when he opens the door, you walk through it. God delights to take the improbable to do the impossible. That's why he sends people like us to a place like Senegal, where it is an impossible work. But God is best glorified when those who are the weakest and those who are most enabled and those who don't have much to offer, offer everything. And he takes that and he multiplies it and goes beyond what you could ever ask or think. All you have to do is just offer what you got. And so this king says, I can't do it. Well, the prophet finds out and his response reveals his dependency and closeness to God. What does he say in verse 8? Elisha, when he heard it, he said, why did you rent your clothes? Let him come. Let him come now to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Let him come. I'm just going to do what God said. Let's just do what God's calling us to do. Now, we come lastly to this spiritual decision. Naaman's life is about to be changed forever. And his journey was a spiritual journey toward eventually salvation, healing and salvation. But this journey was a bumpy one. There's a lot he had to overcome. And these principles apply everywhere. Anybody without Christ, especially those who have a false idea of religion and God. This was a spiritual journey, a lot to overcome. Number one, Naaman had to overcome the belief that God's favor can be bought or worked for. Remember, he shows up with all that gold, silver, changes of raiment. I mean, he is blinged out. He is ready to buy this miracle. He's going to do what he's got to do. He had to overcome the idea that God's favor, <coughs> favor can be bought or worked for. He shows up ready to buy this miracle, and yet there's no fanfare. Nobody's excited to see the gold, except later we won't get to it, but the survey, he's, he's got money size in his eye. But here is Elisha. Doesn't even come out to greet him. Now, in that culture, all right, a place like synagogue, you don't greet people. Like, greetings will take like 10 minutes when you meet somebody new, and you're just sitting there shaking hands, and you go through this whole process. Greetings are very, very important. In a culture like this, when you don't name him, this guy's important, all right? So yeah, imagine his response. Now, God is breaking down his pride. If he's going to be healed, he's going to find the truth. His pride's got to be broken down. It's pride that leads us to believe that we can work for our salvation or earn it. Elisha doesn't come out. Does this guy know who I am? I'm the general. Does this guy know I could destroy this city if I wanted to with a snap of my fingers? Who does he think he is not even coming out to greet me? And God's working on his heart, breaking down his pride. You know how prideful it is to think that we can earn our way to heaven? 
That somehow I can do, if I can, you know why works don't work? The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of work. I don't know how it could be much clearer. Just spelled out. Not of works, lest any man should what? Boast. You want to know why works don't work? The reason works don't work to get you into heaven, number one, is our nature is incompatible with God, right? If we spend even one millisecond in the presence of God in our current position, no matter how good you are, without salvation, without righteousness of Christ, without redemption, you stand in the presence of God in your current condition, born a sinner, without the righteousness of Christ, his holiness would consume you instantly. I don't care what you did. He's not going to stop and ask you now, what did you do in life? And what good thing? No, his holiness would consume you. You'd be done. All right. First of all, we're incompatible with God's nature. We need his nature, Christ's nature. But it also doesn't work because works exalts the individual. If I got to heaven and God said, why should I let you in? Let me measure all of your good works and weigh them against your bad. And that's good. You did just enough good works to outweigh your bad works. Come on into heaven. You know what I get to do all eternity? I get to go around to everybody and say, you see what I did? You want to watch the tape again? Look, watch my life. See all those good things I did? Aren't I such a great guy? <laughs> Look, I, God had to let me in because I'm such a great guy. I don't know about you, but eternity is not going around listening to people telling how great they are. You know what heaven is all about? You know what eternity is all about? It's this. I was born a sinner separated from God. I am a worm. I am a nothing. I am, I am an enemy from God. And I never even asked God, but he came to me anyway. And he brought my salvation. He paid for my sins on the cross. And I didn't even ask him to do it. And he did it anyways, whether I wanted it or not. And he came to earth and he took all my sin debt and he paid for all my sin. And all I had to do was receive it by faith. And he saved me. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. And when I get to heaven, I get to go around all eternity saying, look, how good my God is. Look what Jesus did for me. I was a worm. I was a nothing. And yet he loved me and reached down to me and came to me. This is such a great God we serve. That's what heaven's all about. But that's what this life is all about. Going around telling how good our Jesus is, what he did for me. Don't wait to heaven to get, get around going glorifying what Jesus did for you, all right? Do it now. And Elisha says, go wash in the Jordan River. There's no fanfare. He doesn't even come out of his house. He sends his servant out. He says, go wash in the river. The second thing he had to overcome, he was looking for a religious ritual to perform, not a spiritual truth to believe. He goes away. He says, go wash in the Jordan. And the Bible says Naaman was wroth and, and went away and said, I thought surely he would come to me and stand and call on the name of his God and strike his hand over this place and recover the leprosy. I don't know what kind of TV they're getting up there in Syria, but he will watch a little bit too much Benny in. He said, I thought I was going to show up and uh, Elisha would come out with his $2,000 suit. He'd take the jacket off and swing it in the air. He'd hit the ground. He'd slap me in the forehead. I'd have a seizure. I'd fall over. Everybody would be clapping and dancing and it'd be a great healing service. He was looking for some sort of a ritual to perform rather than a truth to believe and obey. He's looking for some, some, just something tangible he could do. And again, it's work, workspace. And Elisha says, just go wash. He turns away. Now, he's about to go home. That was the last straw. Forget it. I ain't washing in your filthy Jordan River. We got better rivers in Syria. Forget that. I'm just going home. Now, one of his servants humbly and wisely approaches him and said, now, now wait a second, Naaman. Let's think about this logically. And now, look, the gospel is reason. There's logic and reason in the gospel, all right? And so he reasons with them. 
He says, if he asked you to do some big, mighty thing, would you have done it? Yes. He said, well, then why don't you just go wash in the river? He dips down and he washes and he comes out healed. Totally clean. Skin like a little baby. He just, ooh, it's so soft, you know. And the next verse, as you read, I encourage you to go back and read the whole story. The verse says that when he went back to Elisha, he said, now I know that there's no God in heaven but the God of Israel. That's where the true miracle takes place. He came to knowledge and faith in the true God of Israel. And the question is, how did all that happen? That young man we led to Christ from the other country where he was beaten for his faith and all that, when he shared his story with the group that was there, he said, you know, when I studied with Josh before I got saved, he said, I had prayed that God would send me, when I was a young man, saw the Jesus film, he said, I prayed that God would send me somebody to teach me the Bible. Because when I saw the Jesus film, I wanted to know more about Jesus. And many years down the road, when I met Josh and we studied the Bible, I knew what he had was true. I knew what he preached and what he was living was true. And he said, I had to receive Christ. You know where this whole story is? We think, man, we need more preachers. We need more, if we just had more men of God. You know in this story, Elisha, the man of God, he didn't even come out of his house, right? He's not even that prominent in the story. He's just relaxing his lazy boy. He's like, you just, you know, just go do it, right? You know how Naaman, this mighty man, came to faith? Because back in Syria, this little girl, kidnapped from her home, decided despite this situation I found myself in, it's my job to just get people to know my God. Just get them to Jesus. That's all you got to do. And God is the one orchestrating everything. A little touch here, a gospel track here, a message of hope here. You're touching people's lives. You don't know what part of the story you fit. We're just called to get them to Jesus. I asked uh, that young man that we led to Christ after he had been beaten. I said, now, you, you said you prayed that God would send you a someone to pre share with you and teach you the Bible. I asked him, do you remember, and this was like years that I had known him. I didn't know that part of the story. I said, do you remember what year it was that you began praying that God would send you a Bible teacher in your Muslim village. He thought about it and he said, I think that was about 2001 when I began making that prayer. I went to bed, <laughs> I couldn't even sleep that night. I was so excited because in 2001, as a freshman in Bible college, a friend of mine and I just randomly got this crazy idea that we just picked a country at random and chose Senegal. And said, we're going to go there, and God, if you won't, don't want us there, you're going to have to stop us. It was God orchestrating all of it. God's in all of it. And so may God help us as a church to be committed to fulfilling his call to just get people to Jesus. That's all. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your word.